Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> it's gonna be really emotional. There is no loss for being honest. The real work of life is the work that we do inside ourselves. The responsibility we feel towards the world, like questioning, challenging, say something. Raw and vulnerable and open conversation. That was the best part. I'm scared of the friendship. Taking a breath. Just talk. Shame and guilt. Vulnerabilities. <laughs> that was about to be What does it really mean to be friends? We trust the real work that we do is overcoming our insecurities every day and learning how to love more. It has examples of the change we want to see in the world. Just talk. taking a breath. So if we just take a breath. Well, my face is on fire from the doctors. <laughs> To have healthier relationships with women, they need healthier relationships with other men. The real work of life is the work that we do inside ourselves. So I'm in an open relationship with my husband, and my husband and I sold our house ten months ago. We have twins that are four years old, we travel around the world, and this is my boyfriend. Hi! <laughs> Perfect! Hi! <laughs> Hi. Welcome back to another episode of Amory, where it's our intention to bring more love into this world, one vulnerable conversation at a time. And those vulnerable conversations that we have span the range of our human emotions. In this episode, you will hear all of our emotions. You will hear anger and shame. You will hear sadness and confusion, and you will even hear acceptance and hope. We believe that there's a collective transformation in progress on a huge scale. And you'll hear each one of us sharing from an open place because we also believe that we are individually a transformation in progress. We share this way because we believe that these conversations are the ones that we need to have. We need to speak out loud with the people close to us. We need to look at our own past with new awareness. We need to own our actions or our inactions. If we hope for a collective transformation of our society, and we do, we have to start at the individual level. We encourage you to listen all the way through this episode, especially if it makes you uncomfortable. This is my practice, and I hope that you join me in it. We invite you to engage us in a conversation. We are still learning, and we desperately want your feedback, and we want to continue growing. We want to be the best allies possible. We also have resources that we mention in this episode in our show notes. And as always, thank you so much for listening and joining us on this journey. No matter where we go with our emotions, we know that we are on the path of growing. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Amory. Given the state of affairs of things in the world, all of us tend to be holding our breath a lot right now. I know I do. One of the greatest things that we have in our little group here in our polycule is Kyle. Kyle is great at a lot of different healing modalities and techniques that he's been participating in for himself. And one of the things that we rely on Kyle for is helping us with some breathing techniques. So I think it's a good time for all of us to kind of reset our nervous system. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we start um, on kind of how this affects the body? But I found these to be really helpful, and I think it would be really helpful for our audience member to members to take a, a little moment and uh, to reset your, your energetic system as we get into this conversation. Thanks, Marty. So the breathing technique is a really simple two-to-one protocol. And two-to-one meaning that you're going to inhale or you're going to exhale twice as long as you inhale. 
So you'll inhale for five seconds and you will exhale for 10 seconds. There's no breaks in between, no pausing. Just keep it simple. And how so long are we going to do that for? It's for five rounds. It's okay. typically what, what uh, will we'll reset and down-regulate the nervous system, which really just means if we're all heightened right now, if we're all in a stress state, if we haven't been breathing properly, this will help to bring us back down to that calm, rest, and digest state. Awesome. So this could be a technique that our audience and ourselves use over and over again. Absolutely. And it's really easy. So hopefully uh, everyone can follow along and then they can, can do it anytime. Awesome. I highly recommend these two because even as a martial artist, when you get ready to fight in tournament or anything like that, there's a lot of adrenaline flowing. And a lot of times people hold on to that adrenaline and it because it's that fight or flight syndrome and they stop breathing. And then that adrenaline overwhelms them. Instead, you can channel that adrenaline and you can use it to flood your muscles with, with blood and oxygenate yourself is the key. So breathing into that, we did a lot of box breathing, the four count in, four count hold, four count out, four count hold. But this is, this is also recovery breath that you're talking about. So I really highly recommend this. And Kyle's done this for me before workouts and things like that. And it's been pretty awesome. Thanks. So thanks for leading this. All right. And you're ready? I'm ready. All right. So breathe in. One, two, three, four, five. Exhale. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 10, inhale, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and exhale, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and inhale, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and exhale, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, seven, eight, nine, ten, and inhale, one, two, three, four, five, and exhale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, last one, inhale, one, two, three, four, five, and exhale, one, two, Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Thank mm, you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I feel much more calm. The reason that we decided to do that breathing exercise was Marty suggested it after I tried to start this once or twice, and it just I kept on trying to breathe first because, in all honesty, I don't quite know where to begin. It's been a really big two weeks and even before that, but really since the death of George Floyd and this incredible movement, murder, murder. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. Since the murder of George Floyd. And I think that's case in point right there is the ability to really recognize and not deny things that have happened. That for me personally has been my lesson over the last two weeks is kind of my default mode of wanting to to not take in all of the painful information and and I've joked in previous episodes you've called me the queen of denial you know I think that that was really my default coping mechanism and and to see it play out in such a, a huge way 
in both Marty between you and I over the years and how you've taken incredible stands for your principles and values. And, and over the last week or so, I've had to really come to terms of how I've judged you. I've judged you for speaking out when all I wanted to do personally was just to stay quiet. Like, hey, didn't you get the memo? We're not supposed to speak out if we agree with or if we disagree with somebody. And you would create conflict and conflict and conflict again. And I was so conflict adverse that it was really, really hard for me. And yeah, just... Did I create the conflict or did I engage the conflict? You, oh, it was already there. You engaged it. You stepped into it. Yeah. Any, I mean, from any infractions, I can think of a ton of examples. But what the biggest things are the conflicts that created in my family and where you would take a stand for something that was just not right. And because they were my family and it was really hard for me, incredible cognitive dissonance for the people that I love, the people that I call my family to have such differing opinions. And uh, it was easier for me to just not deal with that conflict head on. I want to correct another piece of mm -hmm. language. There were differing opinions. They're differing beliefs. Mm -hmm. They're much deeper than an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, when I first saw this starting to circle or circulate on social media, my first reaction was to not watch it and to not and to turn away. I didn't want to see the the graphic nature of of what you know I was reading. I didn't want to, and I you know obviously seeing that it was captured by someone on on camera. I executed my privilege and I and I turned my head and I didn't didn't watch the video and I turned away. And then I was overcome by my own guilt and my own shame that I'm unwilling, unable to look at reality, the things that are going on things that I know have been going on for a long time and I think in that moment when I returned to the internet and started consuming what was happening and I watched the video and I took it in I started working through emotions mm. I think that I've been denying myself and, and even discovering an identity and a lot of past feelings not only about the police but about the the racism in our culture and and in America and and really all around the world and something that you know we've now been in 13 countries in the last year and um, mm -hmm. yeah and and Marty you've been the one to really diagnose every place we've been in and I haven't I haven't really yeah I think I've I've wanted to believe something that wasn't there I wanted to believe that there was a better place than, I mean, I, I think I haven't even processed how bad America is, first of all, and then intuitively leaving it, which is really what happened for me a year ago and, and spending so much of my time outside the U.S., I've been looking for and hoping that there was a place that was this perfect, beautiful paradise, and, and we haven't found it. We haven't seen it. Every country has its own problems. Every white supremacy, imperialism, capitalism, all these things to me that are all really one evil system are everywhere. And no matter where we are, whether it's in New Zealand, you know, seeing how the, the white people here treat the Maori, the native people, or how black people are treated in America, it's, uh, it's really the same and different problems that uh, are being repeated over and over. It's the pandemic that never went away. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. There's no escape of it. 
And that's one of the things I thought about is how you digest information. We don't actually digest information. We decode information. And it depends on your codex on how you decode things. And I've been thinking that I've been going crazy for years because I just see it differently. I decode it differently. And I've been feeling pretty isolated. I'm half white. I'm half brown. My father's from India. I'm a first generation Indian kid. And I'm a fourth or fifth generation white Irish Catholic kid. And I don't speak to my white Irish Catholic side because as many of our listeners have heard in past episodes that I'm estranged from my mother and like a proper Irish family, I typically only met at weddings and funerals. And even then, there's such a great divide in the family. I don't trust anyone on that side of the family. I don't really know anyone on that side of the family. So my whole family's brown. Like I'm the whitest guy in the family. My step family, who I call my family, my, my brother, who's my stepbrother, who runs our company, is 100% Mexican. And my stepmom is Mexican. And they were quote unquote illegals. Right. So like I watch her be called illegal as a human. And my dad is a brown Indian man who I grew up watching being called the N word in our small, medium size, I don't know, white working class suburb of Chicago where my dad put his dental practice. I grew up in his office and just watched the abuse in his office in our neighborhood. And I don't know, I, I've been struggling with where I belong because I don't feel white and I don't feel brown and I don't like even the mixed stuff that's out there, which I'm finding some like clarity about my experiences in. Like I'm, you know, I started the book White Fragility and I wasn't sure like how I would digest or decode the White Fragility book because I've been so fucking mad for so long at, frankly, I'm gonna lump it all together, you guys, mm-hmm. you know, for, making me feel like I was the problem when there was shit going down. Mm-hmm. Can I take a minute? Yeah. So one of the things that has come up for me over this last week or two is the understanding of anger. So I grew up with this idea that anger is wrong. So showing anger is wrong, expressing anger is wrong. So in our relationship, I think over the years, I made your anger wrong because I didn't know how to process it myself. And I'm so thankful, Kyle, for a lot of the emotional work that you've done. And when you shared with me the idea that anger is the feeling that we get when something is unjust or unfair. So anger is a really proper emotion. It's a really, really valid emotion. And it has a place and it has a meaning and it has a way to get us into action to create a more just and more fair world. And so what... But who doesn't like anger? Of course, the white ruling party, the people, um, the in, people power. in power, people in power, of course, like we made anger wrong. We made anger wrong. And so I internalized that. And this is where I've had to do a lot of work to say I internalized the behavior of the racist class to say anger is wrong and I'm going to shame myself if I experience anger and I'm going to shove it down and not say anything. And then I will make anyone else that ex- displays anger. I will make them wrong. And I apologize, Marty. I know that I've let it sink in. And that's been part of the practice, too, is letting all of these emotions that I have been shoving down to really process them and to understand what making your anger wrong, how that's impacted you and impacted us. And we've had incredible conversations over the last couple of days. I mean, the stuff that we've been, the stuff that we've been working through and 
and allowing to come up has been really, really amazing. Really, really amazing, I think, in a way to to clear out some stuff that was there and the hurt. And I feel like I, I know that it's a, a road, a long road, and this is the beginning, but I feel good about finally letting it all in. Yeah. And to what you said, Marty, you know, I just own it. I just own what you said. I own the anger that you have and I have space for it. And a strange thing for me is happening, which is, you know, working through this stuff on on my end is is allowing me to separate from the negativity of this happened, you know, whether it was with you and, and me not supporting you and not being an ally and not seeing who you were speaking up for and what you were representing to all the things that have been now playing in my mind of the times that I didn't speak up growing up, the times that, you know, I was in the Hamptons and there were certain things said. And, and when I was living on the East Coast, there were certain things said and how I've just been blind to it because I am white and I have that privilege. And I don't know exactly what has woken up a lot of people. And I don't think it quite matters because I think at the end of the day, we've all seen something that we can't unsee. And for many of us and myself included, the work right now is processing and letting go and, and letting this past self die. Mm -hmm. Out of that is going to come something else for me that has anger and is going to do something about it. And, you know, in many ways, I feel emboldened and a part of me that has always wanted to represent people that are at risk, are mistreated, are are living in a world that's unequal and unfair. And I think that for me, I devote, you know, my life to this. I devote everything that I have, whether it's my voice or my questions or my heart or my mind, I I devote all of it and I commit that to this. I've been you now what I was saying about the white fragility book is that mm -hmm. I didn't think I was gonna get much out of it to start because I already believe all these things. And then author's notes before the book even fucking starts. I listen to my books. Mm -hmm. I talking about like being mixed and what that experience is like. And uh, it hit me really hard because it is my experience. But I'm even in that, like I'm not half black and half white. I'm half Indian and half white. And I see a lot of the stuff out there that's like black and white. And I don't know where my voice belongs. I have not, it's not like I grew up without racism. Like I grew up with, Indians are very racist people too, you know, like there's classism and caste systems and, you know, someone's too dark or too light. And this is the first time I really understood the term passing and that I was passing, like I passed for white. So I've had white privilege, but now I'm like going back and looking through where I might have mistaken that I didn't. And then I'm guilty because, uh, you know, I go to fucking Lake Forest, Illinois, and I'm there for my cousin's my all Indian cousin's son's first birthday on the beach. And there's like seven or eight families out there and we're the only brown ones out there. And the lifeguards keep coming up and keep fucking giving us shit for the same shit everybody else is doing. They're not talking about anybody else, they're just talking to us. And by like the third time that this like punk ass 16 year old white lifeguard came up to correct me, I'm like, you better shut your fucking mouth before you talk to us. 
until you talk to everybody the fuck else that's doing the same shit before you're going to have a fucking problem and you're going to have to run back to your lifeguard station and find your manager before I eat your fucking face. Right. And I, this is the type of way I talk. This is not something that I'm exaggerating. And, uh, I looked at my cousin and I was fucking blood was boiling. I looked at her, I'm like, how can you put up with this? And she goes, honey, I've been putting up with this my whole life. It's probably the first time I felt viscerally destroyed, but I've always felt it. I just didn't understand it. And, uh, now I see everybody waking up around me and I'm like, how long is this going to last? You know, like, yeah, I was talking to my partner and I was like explaining my experience of our nights of processing. And we're not processing the same way. Like I'm witnessing you two process differently than you're processing, than I'm processing. I'm processing you two. I'm processing mm-hmm. you two talking to your families and challenging mm-hmm. your families and I don't have to challenge my family. I call my brown family and be like, this racist motherfucker. And they're like, yep, that racist motherfucker. And there's like, there's no, there's no noise there. We, it's the same experience. So I'm, I'm having to like go through my history. I'm having like flashbacks to when did this start with me? And I was talking to my partner and it started when I was 10 years old. You know, I went to all Catholic white school. My parents got divorced when I was eight, nine, I don't remember, like I have a missing year of memory in that year, nine years old. Uh, flash forward to 10 years old in fifth grade and that's where my grades slipped. And I remember on my birthday, last day of school, it was my birthday is in June and I just had fucking enough. And I stood up, a 10 year old, I stood the fuck up. I was also estranged from my mother at that, that mm-hmm. time for a whole year too. And I stood up and I was like, fuck this. And I grabbed my backpack and my shit and I walked the fuck out of the school. There's only 235 students in this school. There's eight grades, one class for each grade, 25 kids per grade, like one hallway class. And it didn't stop, you know. Sixth grade, I stopped participating in mass because my father's Hindu and they're talking about removing the demons of these other fucking religions. And I think I had 37 detentions in my first semester of seventh grade. I got kicked out of my first high school almost kicked out of my second high school. I was basically in gangs through fucking high school. I threw parties like motherfucker in high school, made a lot of money, got a lot of trouble. I just want to point out that when you first started to share this with this new filter that I have, I realized you were a protester from the time that you were 10. Like you really stood up for what you believed in. You took action on that. You didn't accept the status quo. It's I've been dying by the fact that I've been getting in trouble for not accepting the status quo. Mm -hmm. You know, I fucking Chicago, dude. I'm on a Saturday morning and I'm on a fucking Chicago bus right outside of our house on Madison. Fucking we're in the West Loop. Fucking richest neighborhood now in Chicago. It wasn't when we moved in. I get on the bus. I'm stoned as fuck. And I get on this bus. I have this great, I had a great breakfast that got bought for me by my godfather, which was fucking great. I had to pay for it. It's a nice breakfast. He's a rich motherfucker. I'm like, it's good, right? I got, I got really stoned. I get on the bus and the bus is fucking packed. And there's this big ass thug motherfucker elbowing this old woman in the fucking head because she fell asleep on his shoulder. I'm like this guy, this woman's like on her way to the hospital to die, right? And this guy is like, Straight out of fucking... Zero compassion. Zero compassion. This guy's a thug, right? And 
No one on the bus is doing fucking anything. Not a fucking thing. Bus driver, nothing. And I fucking look at the bus driver. I'm stop the fucking bus. And he stops the bus. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, get the fuck off the bus. Like you guys, and everybody's like, fuck. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm a seasoned fighter. I, this guy's three times my size, but he's sitting down. I'm like holding the pole. I'm like, I have exa- I'm going to punch this motherfucker in the neck if he stands up at me. Right. And I get on the phone. And I fucking call the fucking police. Right. And not because I think the fucking police are going to do anything, but because I'm going to give this guy a fucking option. I remind him he's on fucking camera and I remind him that I'm on the I'm, and I'm describing him to the police officers on the phone who are fucking knuckleheads. And I'm like, you have an option. Cops are going to be here in two minutes. You deal with them or get the fuck off the bus. And he got off the bus. Right. And he got off the bus. And then the bus started having trouble getting started again, like the engine started getting started again. And I get half the bus is like, thank you. And the other half of the bus is like, what happens if you had a gun? What if this, what if that, what if that? I'm like, you're just going to watch him beat this old lady? Like, what the fuck is wrong with all of you? And I'm like, on my way to a lunch, I'm like, my high is fucked up. Like, I'm like, no longer <laughs> as high as I was. And I'm like, this, this fucking sucks. And this is like an example of if everybody on that bus stood up, that motherfucker wouldn't have done anything. But half the fucking bus is quiet. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Yeah. Why do you all witness this shit and do fucking nothing? Mm-hmm. And it make me wrong. And I've been tired of that shit. And it's been like a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And I had to leave. Part of the reason we left Chicago is I saw this coming. And if it gets any more violent, I know I won't hesitate. And I needed to get out of it before I go to jail and my kids are without their daddy. And I can't do that. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that we're all in different places, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for me, what I'm thinking about is that every time I go through a change, my past changes Mm -hmm. and how I view my past. And what keeps replaying in my head is I grew up in Barrington, which, you know, is, is this place. If people don't know it, it is extremely affluent, 99% white community in the suburbs of Chicago. Really old money, which creates a certain type of culture. And that aside, things started happening when I left Barrington. Because if you look at my life, I was in this bubble from zero to 18. I really was. I didn't leave even the town very much. I would go to the city infrequently. So I didn't even get exposure to to the world, let's say. And if we went on vacation, we went to a nice resort, you know, the floor in Florida, the Caribbean, etc. So like I had a pretty sheltered life. I'm aware of that uh, now. But I think when I started leaving my town and I went to college and I moved to New York and all these things happened, when people would find out where I was from, if they were Jewish, if they were any other race or culture or ethnicity, they would say, oh man, Barrington, that's a racist place. And for some reason that I would only call shame or not wanting to acknowledge what is real, I didn't, it didn't land. Those things didn't land for me because, you know, my family is a very progressive liberal family where I think that my perception of Oh, we there isn't racism in this house, which I don't think is is totally true either. But that was my perception is that oh we're you know we're we're one of the good I'm one of the good guys. I mean that was one of the 
things that came up for me in this whole thing is like, oh, I'm one of the good people though, right? And there's still a not a atonement and a recognition of all the things that have happened that I haven't stood up for, all the things that have happened that I've even bought into. And there's so much that, and I just keep going back in my mind of realizing all these things from the narratives that I've seen of black on black violence and black people live off the system and all these narratives that have been fed to me by this community, by wealthy white men that I was surrounded by my whole life. Taking that in and, and understanding that that has shaped me, that has shaped how I've seen the world, that has shaped who I was. And yes, over time, I've had to unravel these things. I've had to unravel who I was influenced by, who I was shaped and molded by. And there's still a long way to go for me personally. Now, for an entirely different lens, my Indian father decided he needed to move to Naperville. Illinois, which if anybody knows about Naperville, it's uh, the worst place on the planet. And if anybody listening is from Naperville, you suck. Um, uh, and I had gone to fucking high school there and my dad moved there because of status. He's a doctor, right? But he's a doctor at kid care, medical practice, which is public aid for dental care for kids in the state of Illinois. And, you know, talk about living off the system. I grew up in his office. It's every color walks through that door. White, black, brown, every ethnicity. Poor doesn't discriminate in that sense. And Well, I understand systems now, well, right? And yeah. I've educated myself. No, but I just want to, I'm, yeah. like, I'm getting to the point of, like, when we moved to Naperville, I fucking hated it. And why did I hate it? Because for nine fucking years while my dad lived there, no neighbors talked to us. No, they just called the police, right? Like the police had my phone number. Like police would call my dad. I was a troublemaker, like a real troublemaker. Police would call my dad at two o'clock in the fucking morning looking for me. My dad would be like, fuck you. He has his own phone number and he'd hang up on. And then I'd get a call in my room. So I had my own phone line, right? And they'd call me. I'd be like, fuck you. Come arrest me. And I'd hang up on the cops, right? Like, and I, I had this craziness going on. Like I have cops show up in my house because I was, Smoking a cigarette in the front and shorts in the summer. We were like, your neighbors call, you're smoking weed. I'm like, I wish I had weed, motherfucker. Like, you're bringing me weed, asshole. I was, because I, I had privilege too, because I had a daddy that was wealthy enough that I could, I could mouth off to the fucking cops. And I was white enough to get away with it. And they were unsure what to do with me. But it doesn't stop the fact that I've been beaten twice by the police. Uh, I've had a gun put to my head half a dozen times. And I, I have a, a lens of like when people are like, hey, Naperville is the greatest place to raise your kids. And I'm like, has the highest heroin problem in the fucking country and blah, 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 blah. And I raise them. No one fucking believes me. And I'm just sitting here like, so I see this lens of, I know, I know what you're talking about with Barrington. And it's just mm -hmm. kind of the other side of the coin. So this is the point in the episode where we would normally stop and we would ask you to become an Amory patron, which we would always love. But for this episode in particular, we'd really like to invite you to make a donation to an organization that speaks to you. Now, at the end of this episode, you will hear Marty talk very emotionally about an organization that he loves and that I love and we both support, which is in Chicago. It's called formyblock.org. You'll see Marty in the hoodie all the time in the pictures, my block, my hood, my city. 
Now this organization is led by an incredible human being named Jamal Cole, who we've had the honor and privilege to support when we lived in Chicago. We invite you to take a look at formyblock.org or go to any organization in your community at a grassroots level that can support Black Lives Matter, that can support creating a more just and equal society. Uh, We really leave it up to you, but we encourage you to take action to support with your action, with your money, with everything that you have to keep this conversation going. So thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. Yeah, it took me years to actually realize how white Crystal Lake was. So Crystal Lake, Illinois is a Northwest suburb. And it took me until, Jesus, I don't know, like your sister's wedding. Yeah, like five years ago when I was there and just opened up my eyes and was like, dear God, this is really just all white. And like, I was standing next no to you. no diversity. I was standing next to you. I'm like, do you just fucking see this now? Like, yeah. <laughs> so I will, I don't know what happened. <laughs> From, I mean, you guys talk about your childhoods. I will talk about mine briefly. I grew up in Crystal Lake, Illinois, which is very, very, very white. It's reflective. Um, yeah. <laughs> but my parents had traveled internationally. And I feel like from the time I was young, I had a more international focus. They talked about when they lived in Germany for five years. My dad was in the military. He's you were born in Germany. Yeah, I was born in Germany. My dad has this big sense of justice, which was always instilled. So fairness, justice, equality were all things that we talked about in my household. And my to my parents' credit, I think they raised very nice children. Like, we're nice. But that's where... <laughs> That's where things go off the rails, because when you raise nice children and you teach, like I was taught to be a good girl and good girl doesn't create conflict, doesn't step into conflict and definitely doesn't say anything, which were messages that I received again and again and again, not from my parents directly, but from, you know, the, the larger circle. That's really what I internalized. But in some senses, I kind of feel like I skipped past the whole idea of even looking at racism in the U.S. because to my both my parents, I think just thought it was done like oh yeah we're done with racism like that's that's done it's not around anymore but what I did focus on was more international injustices so I feel like I was raised with a lens of looking out internationally and what's been hard with this last couple days is usually I want to discredit everything that I've done like when I see that I've done something or I didn't stand up for injustices and if Marty if I didn't join you when I didn't join you I tend to filter that across everything. But the piece that I realize is that I I have been doing in my life grassroots efforts on the international scale. So I was a director at a cultural exchange organization where students would come in from around the world and stay with American host families and in rural communities. And we're talking, these are like teenagers that are being ambassadors of their country from all over the world. And they're making real connections. And And that was something I was really proud of. And at the same time, I realized that I used my filter of ignorance, complete ignorance, and really being afraid of my own ignorance. Like every time I would get a little inkling, like, oh God, I don't know anything about that. I would shut my mouth and run the other way because I was so afraid of looking ignorant. I was so afraid of not knowing. And that's kept me from from opening up my eyes and digging in and doing everything over the last couple of weeks now. I feel like I've, I've... let in far more information, like reading different books, taking on, watching the 13th, uh, that movie, also reading the book White Fragility. And I and I hear myself in that. I'm like, oh God, I'm like, I am who she's talking about, this white fragility where it's 
to even have the idea of, oh, I'm not a racist. No, of course I'm not a racist. You know, look at all the stuff that I've done. But that's actually the problem. <laughs> that's actually the problem that I can't see where I've internalized different things where I've, when I've kept my silence, my silence is violence by not stepping up. All of that, I just have been shunning because it was so hard to look at. It was so hard to admit. And now these are the waves of realization that I let, let in. And on the good note, where I feel like I'm finally re-empowering myself with this, with ignorance is that as soon as I find out that I am ignorant of something, that's beautiful. That means I can learn something. I can say, oh, wow, I'm, I don't know anything about that. What can, I, what can I learn? Like, teach me, teach me, teach me. I disagree. How it's so? not as soon as you find out. That's where I'm, this process has been healing as you guys get woke, but it's also been hard because I don't know what the fuck changed. Like, why is it all, like, what happened? Was it really George Floyd's death? Because before him, like two weeks earlier, mm -hmm. young man in Georgia. And since the start of the quarantine, 10, at least 10 black trans women have been murdered. No, no justice, nothing. Right. And since George Floyd, there's been like three more. Right? Eric Salzato, right? And there's two in California. And uh, Brianna, is it? Brianna Taylor? Yeah, Taylor. Uh, yeah. And well, she, was before, well, she was before, actually. actually yeah. and, and then there is one just yesterday. And like, this is a play, right? So, mm -hmm. what did it? What the fuck did it? I, I follow Snoop Dogg online, which I highly, highly recommend Snoop Dogg's Instagram account. <laughs> yeah. But he was like, he's like, the pandemic stopped like sports and concerts and big gatherings and like made us all sit and watch. Mm -hmm. And now we see it. Mm -hmm. And it's like this pandemic is like divine intervention. And like maybe, yeah, everybody's stopping and looking at it. But like my worry is what triggered it and is it going to last? And you're the transformation, uh, you know, expert here. And, and I think if you're looking at this whole thing from a bigger lens now, you're seeing We've now seen what we can unsee with the environment. If mm -hmm. we stop polluting the shit out of it, we can actually breathe in our cities. Mm -hmm. And now we're now if we because we we always will just see something and we'll go back to what we're doing, this fast moving, busy life, and we can kind of knock away one thing at a time. But I think what's happened is we had the environmental see what you can't unsee anymore, which is like the world stopped. Things started to clean up, air started to become cleaner, and now there's the social side of the injustices that have always been there, and and the media cycle typically runs over them. But I think the movement was able to get traction, mm -hmm. and the movement is what's continuing. The movement's going to go on, and for is it a though? Like time. we, so many people want to return to normal. You know, in 150 days we have an election, right? Something like that. Mm -hmm. Is that motherfucker going to stand down? If he gets not elected, and by motherfucker, I mean Trump. And does, you that know. That seems like the final part. Will he get reelected? Because there's a possibility he'll get reelected. Will he instate martial law before that election happens? Which is highly likely based on his volatility and based on what's going on in the United States. And if that happens and there's a breakdown in the voting system, is he going to win by a landslide because a whole bunch of people couldn't get it to the fucking polls? And like, I don't want to go home. I talked to my brother today about moving with us to another country. He said, yes, I want to get my mom, my stepmom and my dad out of there. I don't want to go back. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take my kids back there. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm so fucking torn right now. 
Can I go back to your comments about ignorance? I think that I've been doing a lot of digging on this personally. When do I deny? Why do I stay ignorant? And I think that that is actually the crux of humanity right now. Is, is we, it about the why? But oh no, it's not about the why. It's I guess it's not about the why, but where I think we have power. And what I find is it's the same pattern with everything that we're confronted with. And I do think actually ignorance is a part of the human learning process. We are ignorant to something until we learn it, until we experience it, until we let that in. But what happens is that anything that creates cognitive dissonance for us, we're receiving information that's different, tells us a different story than what we believe about the world or about ourselves. It creates that cognitive dissonance. Now, Marty, you and I have talked about in past podcasts that that's actually the beginning of transformation. If you allow for cognitive dissonance, you can start the process of transformation. But where I feel like a lot of people get blocked is that when that cognitive dissonance happens, if that evokes an emotion, like if you feel shame, shame from that, like I felt deep shame when I let in the information, finally, I felt deep, deep, deep shame. And I think that's what stops a lot of people because I think you would take any pattern in, in recent human history, even let's say, oh, I'll call this a more neutral one, tobacco. So how many studies did they have to do to prove that smoking causes cancer? And even in the face of that information, people still denied it and denied it and denied it. Why? Because smoking in the Marble Man was so connected to American identity that there was like no way that people could incorporate that information into their current identity. So this goes back to your past episodes and everything you've been talking about with identity change. We have to be able to go through identity changes. We have to because we're always hopefully going to be receiving new information about ourselves and about the world. Everything from climate change to how we deal with race and sexism and health and the health of our soil and everything. All of this information, if we allow it to come up and create cognitive dissonance, to feel that shame and feel that hurt of the things that we've done personally, personally, we have to be able to move through that. And Marty, one of the biggest things that you said to me was, I don't know, a night or two ago when we were by the fire and you said, Megan, and this was in my breakdown of having a really hard time acknowledging the pain that I've caused you directly because I haven't seen you and I haven't understood your anger and because I've made you wrong. That was really hard for me to process. And you brought out the hero's journey, which I love you for. And you're like, you will not get past the next stage if you keep denying instead of atoning. <laughs> there has to be that phase of, of forgiveness, of forgiveness of oneself and acceptance. So acceptance and forgiveness to get through. I don't know, you're the expert in that area, but so that's where I always got stuck. We bring up the hero's journey because the hero's journey is the deconstruction of the human condition of transformation through myth and through process, which is what Joseph Campbell basically distilled out of researching and myth. And a lot of your favorite movies are written, books are written, most of them are written in some format or another of the hero's journey. And in this case, step eight, part two, the crisis, the ordeal. It's where you can't unsee what you've seen and part of you dies. But you don't want to hang on like, you don't want the new identity. In the United States, at least the United States, if not all over the world, is in the middle of a fucking white identity crisis. Mm -hmm. And that identity crisis is that there is, needs to be a new identity born, but that old identity won't die. And if you don't kill off that old identity, mm -hmm. then you just you deny what you see and you won't get the rewards of change. You will, you will go back and sink into the habits of the old. You'll be in denial and, and you're hero, denial. you'll no longer be the hero of your own journey. You are the... Yeah. the end of it and but if you do accept the change you have to go through the next process which is a, actually technically the abyss and the abyss is 
where you, you're disoriented because you are a new identity and you don't know how to cope with the new world that you've just entered. And then you have to go through atonement, which is forgiving your past self and others for how you got there. And then and only then can you get the rewards. And my worry is that this identity crisis in the United States is a whole bunch of people waking up so that they're motherfucking racists and that they're complicit to this racist. So this is an identity that what the fuck is the reward? The reward isn't for them. Well, here's the problem, though. You got two old fucking white men running for president. Mm -hmm. That's the options. Mm -hmm. There's some cognitive dissonance that this isn't changing, no matter who wins. Mm -hmm. And, And yes, don't vote for Trump. No one. I'm not doing it. That's worse. But it's still, these votes are not for change. We're not changing at the top level. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure everybody's fed up. And from the bottom up is how we're, we're going to have to do this. Well, mm-hmm. And it's at the community level. It's a local alderman level. It's like it's your people fucking need to run for condo association. a heart and a soul. It's your condo association. It's smaller than the fucking alderman. It's the fact that, look, anybody that owns a fucking condo has dealt with a condo association. Almost every condo association president is a horrible fucking asshole. Why? Because they there's like this void in leadership. And so the only one that wants to take it is the person hungry for fucking power, right? Power is the key. Mm-hmm. And so they go in and they take this yeah. role, but no one else wants the role. So this asshole gets the role. Mm-hmm. And then it's a living nightmare for everybody. And before someone will be willing to take the role, they'll move. Mm-hmm. And we were brokers for 10 years in Chicago. I saw this shit a fucking million times. Mm-hmm. Crazy ass association presidents. It is... The local fucking person, the local person running your park system, the the PTA and the school board, the the fucking alderman. How many people go to the fucking city, at least in the city of Chicago, your ballot is like 40 people on the ballot. There are judges and aldermen and water reclamation district and all this other stuff. And I would do my homework and I would have my cheat sheet of like, you know, fucking vote every judge out. Get rid of fucking full terms. Anybody who's been there too long, get the fuck out. Get rid of all white men. Fuck it, I don't care because they're going to win anyway. So I'm going to fucking vote against those motherfuckers, right? And I'm going to keep putting in women and people of color and the Green Party and do my homework on which motherfucker's under a scandal. Look, Alderman Ed Smith gets caught by the fucking FBI on a wiretap through the through the Spanish, the Mexican Alderman. This is in Chicago. Yeah, Danny Solis, I think is the guy's name. And he was fucking caught and then wiretapped Ed Smith. And Ed Smith gets fucking caught. And then gets fucking reelected. This motherfucker's in the middle of an FBI scandal. Why does he get reelected? Because all of you motherfuckers are apathetic. You don't do anything. You just sit there. I voted for the president. I voted for the alderman. Good job. You know, like when I used to clean the gutters in my neighborhood, fuck after a rain, I'd be like, why are you cleaning the gutters? Isn't that the city's job? Be like, this is the fucking problem. The city, the park system has is minus a hundred million dollars. Right? Do you think they have enough staff? They can't hire anybody. Half the fucking people are volunteering in the park. And most of the people volunteering in the park are people of color. Right? There are a lot of people from other countries that just value park systems differently. And then the fact of the matter is that if we were cleaning out our own sewers and picking up our own trash and attending to our own parks, then the tax money that we have could go to better fucking things. But now, like, we see the tax money goes to fucking police officers and $1.8 billion for fucking police department in Chicago. The fuck is that? Mm -hmm. The fuck is that? And I told you, I taught my kids as soon as they were fucking able to understand. You don't trust fucking Chicago police officers. You don't trust cops. And we went all the way to Belgium and your host sister is a detective now. And I had to have a conversation with my kids about how we're going to trust this cop tonight. (laughs) Right? Because we know this one. 
But I'll be honest with you, I don't trust her either. Mm. Because if you can fucking put a badge on right now and you have the blue code, I don't give a fuck who you are. You can watch that shit and do fucking nothing from the inside out. You're no fucking hero. You're no fucking, you defend and protect. You don't defend and protect. You serve your fucking fellow brothers and sisters and you hide and you're a fucking coward. And at the end of the fucking day, I don't trust any of you. And if you can sit in that system and not be the fucking whistleblower, fuck you. So I'll say it. I don't even care if I lose audience because of fuck cops. Seriously, fuck cops. If cops did something differently, then I would say stop fucking cops. Or fuck cops. And fuck the system they're in. And fuck this brotherhood bullshit. And fuck the blue code. And fuck that little flag with the blue stripe because blue lives don't matter. Blue lives aren't fucking races. That's a fucking job. Serve and protect what? Each other? Fuck them. I call the police because I caught a black man breaking into my friend's truck. I pulled the guy out of the truck, told him to drop the bag. It's all the tools. He looked at me. Like I had my two dogs and me, pit bulls. He looked at me. He's like, what am I going to do? I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Get on your bike. Get the fuck out of here. And he's stunned. I'm like, get out of here because now I'm going to call the police because I'm going to file a report. But get the fuck out of here before they come. And he left. I called the police. And 30 minutes later, they show up. And the first thing this fat fuck gets out of his truck and he looks at me and he's like, fucking unfit shitty white fucking Chicago cop pulls out his fucking pad from his bag. He's like, what'd the motherfucker get? I'm like, nothing. He didn't get anything. I stopped him and I got all the shit back. He's like, did you kick his ass? I'm like, no, I didn't kick his ass. I don't want to lawyer up. I don't want to deal with that shit. He's like, oh, we would have looked past it. We're called street justice. And I looked at the cop. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I'm not filing a report. Fuck you. And he's like, what? I'm like, I'm fucking done. I just walked away. I can't fucking take this shit. Maybe it's Chicago, but I think it's fucking everywhere. I don't trust a cop fucking anywhere. I mean, I think we've seen, I, I think what we I'm can't sorry. unsee, no, don't apologize. That's how you feel. I think what we can't unsee as well is not just uh, systemic racism, it's police brutality. And it's it's huge and it's everywhere and it is excessive I see, force. I don't see how we can unravel racism without unraveling capitalism. 100% agree. Because I think that white people and the way that our identities have been created and our self-worth has been created is around capitalism being number one, being the best, dominating. And all of that just equates to a legalized form of racism. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't see how we can't unravel one without yeah. both. Yeah. One without the other. So the one thing I realize, fall. yeah, one thing I'm realizing that I, again, have been ignorant to is power dynamics. I mean, power dynamics are real. There's a really, really good TED talk that I can put in the show notes here for explaining power. And power is a real thing. And I think money is kind of the, the vessel or the vehicle of power. I mean, where you have resources, you have power. And that for me is a place that I realize I've been ignoring and I want to teach myself. I want to be able to see in any social dynamic, where is their power? Where is their lack of power? Why? What are the systems that are set up? I mean, Kyle, you and I have been geeking out about systems for two years now. Yeah. And I think even, even in seeing that, it's, I'm still learning about systems and the flow of different things in our human systems that we've set up here. Yeah. And I think what do they say? Like analysis paralysis, like you can look at something so long that then you can get paralyzed by and, and not do anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like systems, understanding systems for me has become this like 
endless analyzing of what's going on and how it's all connected and it's this never-ending web of things that are connected to each other and right now you know i've gone down into the you know the place of shame and guilt and feeling pain and all these emotions and now i'm trying to use my anger to shoot me back upward Mm -hmm. and using anger as a fuel because and i think other people should consider this that anger is a is a useful tool and what are you angry about And for me, I was actually arrested four times between the ages of 16 and 20. I obviously was able to get out of all of these things. And it wasn't because of my white privilege, because of my attorney father, I was able to get out of a lot of these things. But it did give me an experience of the police and and how I was targeted when I lived in Barrington by the, the police department there. And they would just follow me whenever they saw me and they would try to get me for drinking or whatever I was doing, which which I was doing uh, underage. But yeah, fuck them. And so I had my experiences. And I, you know, while I was going through my own crisis, problems, PTSD, traumas, you know, the system was ready to just fucking put their fist right through my face and slam me to the ground. And when I was at Indiana University where I went to school, I experienced, you know, one night I was at a bar, I was 20. And we were all going to get a ride home. The car was full. So I let everybody get inside except for me. And I just said, hey, I'll just run home. As I was running home, I was running in between two buildings. A a cop car pulled in. The cop then put his lights on me, chased me down, tackled me, maced me, and then threw me into the drunk tank for 24 hours. And I was charged with a felony for battery on a police officer while he was kicking my ass. And he had his story, which was the story that the system took. And while I am privileged in 150 million ways above anyone else, this is this is my problem. And this is where I'm taking my anger, which is defund the police. Defund. And I will put all my efforts, all my focus, all my messaging, all my protests towards that because I've had my own experiences, but I, I can't imagine what other people experience yeah. beyond that, if that was my experience. And it's something that is a absolute cancer and it's connected to the, the jail system. When you think about systems, police system is connected to the jails system, which is mm-hmm. the most corrupt shit I've ever fucking seen in the, on the planet. Mm-hmm. And that's connected to the, the legal system, which is manipulated by the political system. So all yeah. of this stuff has to to change, but it starts with the police department because that's harming people yesterday yeah. and today and tomorrow. And let's uh, be people of color. And let's be honest: if you were black, I you could have died. died. Absolutely, and that ran through that that ran through my mind because I actually was in thrown into the drunk tank with another college student who was black, and he was in there because he was trying to break up a fight that occurred in a bar. And the cops came in instead of taking the two people that were in a fight, they grabbed him and they threw him in jail. And, and he and I became friends, but that was another experience. You know, again, I talk about the experiences that happened when I left my town. These were the experiences that occurred for me, but they weren't enough. And that's something that I'm really sitting with, that there wasn't enough for me to become an ally and step up in the way that I'm fucking pissed off enough right now. And I'm going to keep this anger going and I and I have ways that I'm going to do it, which is just continuing to be exposed to the injustice, mm-hmm. the police brutality until this shit changes. And I'm going to continue to, to do what I can, use 
my platform, use my energy, use my mind. And if I have to use my body and be at these protests and protect people, I will. What are your thoughts, Marty? My head is spinning. I think about you got out of jail because your dad's a powerful attorney and your dad's a powerful attorney, Megan. Mm -hmm. Megan's father is a West Point grad, JAG Corps officer, retired major, army, not retired, he was an army ranger. Army ranger. Mm -hmm. And you were born on a German army base. And I remember he handed me my career. We tried to get along. I think we did a little bit. But he handed me Marcus Aurelius, the meditations, a book on stoicism. And I want to tell all you motherfuckers to burn that motherfucking book because stoicism is the reason you shut your fucking mouth. And stoicism is the reason you don't fucking emote. And, mm-hmm. you know, stoicism was born when Marcus Aurelius took over the empire during a plague while the fucking Rome was burning. And it was in chaos. And the idea was to shut down your emotions, to handle what's in front of you every day. And, you know, I think the whole birth of Western philosophy made things very binary, made things very us versus them. You know, I think there's a lot of mistakes that, that ignorant, especially Americans, but Westerners and all just take for fucking truth. Like we think, therefore we are, therefore Mm -hmm. we are. I don't think that's true. I don't believe that's true. Like we feel too. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have all these other forces that play and not everything's fucking binary. Not everything is technically and not racially black and white. Not everything is this, you know, like if one more person says to me, some cops are fucking good. I just want to fucking scream because it's not this black and white binary scenario. There are many forces at play and all of these forces have to be taken into consideration and they have to be countered or impeded or nudged or moved. And it requires an acceptance of all the forces that are there and it requires an observation of what is actually going on. And if we keep selling each ourselves on our fucking stoic, binary fucking constructs, you're just going to keep spinning in fucking circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually think that so I was super stoic before and I feel like that's that is our dysfunction. I think that we've detached as a we'll call it as a society. We've detached from our hearts that we're in our heads. And I actually think that that's that's white dysfunction primarily that if you look at the generations and centuries of mistreatment of black people by white people, that that is, there is not only pain on the side of the black people, but you look at the dysfunction that that has created over years and years and years of shutting down. Like how can you be a functional human being torturing someone else? You can't, that is, that is dysfunctional. That is dysfunctional. I think that we've got the remnants and that I also hold this grain of hope that we can heal, that this is a time of healing because the dysfunction that I've seen in myself and I feel like in the white race is this detachment. And it is our our living in our heads and not in our hearts. And it is this journey to actually feel again and to feel. And we can start, we start here. We start with a feeling of- Feeling more than mm -hmm. just the happy part of the spectrum. Totally. Like if you're sad, then you get- clinically depressed technically and then they give you fucking medication Medication. if you get angry you get looked down on and you're rageful and you're you have a mood disorder i think a lot of people diagnosed with bipolar or mood disorders are actually just really empathetic and really struggling with fucking society being fucking toxic and poisonous and they have no way to to process Mm -hmm. those negative emotions because you're not allowed to negatively emote no 
No, it's not acceptable. Sadness and anger, we shove down. We we view them as not acceptable emotions, but they are they are the emotions that get us to change our life. That's where that's where change can stem from. So for me, I know Kyle, you said a lot of your commitments, and I'm still processing, and I will continue to make my commitments. But for me, it's to feel deeply, to feel the pain, to feel the anger, to feel the sadness, to feel the rage of the injustice, and to let that fuel me. Yeah, because here's the thing. If you really want to empathize with people of color, then you have to feel to empathize. Mm -hmm. Empathize is feeling what the other person is Mm -hmm. feeling. And if you deny their anger and Mm -hmm. you deny the rage and you deny all of that, there's zero fucking way you can empathize. Totally. Because you won't yourself allow yourself to get angry or rageful. Mm -hmm. Right? And you have to get there. I mean, we watched this this documentary last night, Can You Dig This by Ron Finley, right? Like, I'm all about gardening. I'm learning fucking, I'm working with the Maori on the Hua Patakore food sovereignty principle. And the greatest form of activism is food sovereignty, is grow your own fucking food, right? And, and I watch this, this video and you see Spicy is the guy mm-hmm. who's like the Delilah, the, the director, the, the one filming it, asks him how he's feeling. He's like, we don't, I ask him what he dreams about. He's like, we don't use that word, mm-hmm. right? Because it's just, they're disassociated. Because trauma creates disassociation mm-hmm. from your emotions. You don't feel shit anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? It's survival for him. Mm-hmm. Right. It's survival for him. And it's, it's safety for you. Yeah. Choice. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like I get to stay in my mm-hmm. place and stay in my lane as long as I don't feel that. And he, mm-hmm. he can't feel that because you're not going to acknowledge mm-hmm. that feeling. And you're not going to fucking know that like, look, during the fucking filming of that thing, they're smoking fucking weed. Right? Mm-hmm. And he gets arrested and thrown in fucking jail. Mm-hmm. Right? And how many people are in jail right now for fucking weed, which we've decriminalized. And now make a fortune on it. And it became an essential fucking service Mm -hmm. inside of the fucking pandemic. So why are all those motherfuckers still in jail? Mm -hmm. Because everybody in jail in the United States earns $100,000 for the private company that owns that fucking bed. And it makes more money for keep them in fucking jail. So the longer they're in there, the better it is. We can't unravel capitalism without racism. It's 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 interconnected at this point. And they they both need to, to go. I don't know if I had a point on this whole podcast. No. I think I feel like I'm just raging. <laughs> and, but that's okay. So I think what I've realized is that our discussions, and we've been having these discussions for days now, I think documenting them, that's what this is. This is a podcast documentary. <laughs> and I think if we don't document in this point in time to understand how we're feeling, what we're going through, what we're thinking about, we would, I don't know. like what, Podcumentary? It's a pod, podcumentary. <laughs> I like that. All right. Yeah. All right. I like that. Yeah. So I Marty, think- you have no, nothing to apologize to. No. And I, I speak on behalf of myself, of course, but I'm pretty sure in all the people that I talk to that, that care and listen to us that they want to know where we're at they want to know how we're feeling and yeah but safe spaces i have a breakdown about that because i don't know what my voice is supposed to be because am i the white privileged motherfucker because i grew up with some privilege and am i am i a person of color which i i don't i mean i've said my whole life you know i walk into my indian family in india at an indian wedding and oh here comes your irish cousin you know and the irish side here comes your indian cousin i don't know the fuck i am and i don't know what voice i have and i don't know where the fuck i how i'm perceived even you know, I'm here in fucking Aotearoa, which is New Zealand. And I'm, and now people are like, white people are like, oh, your country, find out American. They hear me, they're like, oh, your country's fucked. I'm like, your country's fucked too. And they're like, no, we're great. I'm like, you trust your cops? Yeah, I trust my cops. I'm like, because you're not Maori or Pacifica. I'm like, because you xenophobic motherfuckers, like, 
There's 62% of the female population of prisoners in this country, in this country of New Zealand are fucking Maori and Pacifica. Why? This shit's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about arming the police here. Mm-hmm. So who are they going to shoot? White people? No, none of the white people are afraid of arming the police. The police brutality and all this mm-hmm. shit. Like they have the same problems. Just it's the west slope. side of Chicago. Yeah. Do you know who I see you as, Marty? I know that you're still understanding who you are, but I actually see you reflected in the documentary we watched last night where Ron is saying, he's like, I'm, I'm never meant to be an activist. I just wanted to plant food in my, in the parkway. I just planted a bunch of carrots. Yeah. I just planted this food in my parkway because that's what I wanted. And I see you as this reluctant leader in this space. Not that you're taking it on on purpose it's just who you are it's who you've been since you were 10 years old and you speak out for people and you believe in fairness and justice and i feel like that's that's who you are and i said it before marty i couldn't pick a better bunch of people to kick some serious ass with (laughs) and that what i said before uh, only makes more and more sense now and now the biggest thing that you've said over the last couple days one of the biggest is that you feel like now you have allies and to be your ally, not only your partner, but your actual ally is... Yeah, I feel relieved and great. exhausted and confused all at the same time. And, you know, I know we have to wrap this up too. Mm-hmm. So I want to I wanna take this minute and I want to ask, you know, anyone from Chicago listening, there is a, you'll see me in the sweatshirt all the time. But my favorite leader in Chicago is Jamal Cole my black, my hood, my city, and this is a boots on the ground, get shit done organization that I've never seen anyone be able to organize all 77 neighborhoods at the same fucking time in Chicago peacefully and productively. Mm-hmm. And it's formyblock.org, F-O-R-M-Y-B-L-O-C-K.org. And go look at what they're doing and either give or replicate or mm-hmm. volunteer or create in your city or do fucking something. Kyle will be there when I'm home. So <laughs> join me. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being on this journey with us. We honestly never know where our conversations are going to go when we start them. And we just thank you for, for being with us here. We love you. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Amory. We've got so much more that we want to share with you. And our podcast isn't the only platform. We've got written stuff, we've got videos, and we put everything. We've got 50 plus posts now and more and more every day of all of our private journal entries. We're talking our intimate content here. Um, And that's for those of you who wish to go on a deeper journey with us. Um, We think that there's so much more value that we can share with a smaller group of people who are really ready to do the work in your own lives. If that's you, please take a look at our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Amory podcast. There's so much more that we'd love to share with you. Um, And if you're not able to contribute on a monthly basis, you can always share us. Share with your friends, do a post. We appreciate anything that you can do to help us get the word out to have more vulnerable conversations in this world. Thanks again.